Welcome to the Weekend University Podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organized lecture days, where attendees get a full day of talks from leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. If you'd be interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, you can sign up for the early access list at theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. This week we have a lecture from our Day on Meaning event, which took place in July 2018. The talk is on the science of a meaningful life from Dr. Joel Voss. Joel is a clinical psychologist, philosopher, lecturer, and author. He is deputy course leader of the Professional Doctorate in Existential Psychotherapy and Counseling at the New School of Psychotherapy and Counseling in London and a researcher at Metanoia Institute. Joel is director of the internet platform Meaning Online and chair of the successful international meaning conferences, the next of which will be held at Birkbeck, University of London from the 12th to the 14th of July, 2019. Joel has over 70 scientific publications to his name, including the books, Meaning in Life, an evidence-based handbook for practitioners, and 50 pictures of living a meaningful life. His latest book, Mental Health in Crisis, will be published later this year. Enjoy the show. Does life feel boring to you? No, that's the right answer. Do you feel unsatisfied about your life? No. Also a good answer. Do you suffer from an indistinct, gnawing feeling of not being totally happy about your life at certain small moments in your life? Yes. yes. Do you feel stuck? Does life sometimes feel meaningless to you? Well, I have very good news for all of you today. You have no reason to despair anymore. Because now, and you can buy it afterwards here in the lobby, there is now LocoBoost 2000. That is rapid meaning in one day. It will give you guaranteed life fulfillment, gain more than 40% happiness, and it's, of course, developed by our loco lab in London, as you know, the very famous institute. So who is going to buy one? Then I just... Yeah, yeah, I can see some hands. Very good, very good. I should... However... I'll go here. Wait a minute. Are you fed up with all those false advertisements promising a meaningful life? Can you feel, or uh, can you no longer stand the, all the naivety of a lot of people? Do you believe that we can explain all behavior of all people? Do you believe that there's nothing else than firing neurons? Okay, there's, there's some giggling here. Well, if you do, you also have no reason to despair anymore, because Next to those other pills of LocoBoost, you will also find in the lobby, after this lecture, you will also find there our Skeptico 7000. <laughs> this is the new formula, which has been tested by our Nietzsche lab here in London. You can gain rapid skepticism in just one day. 
It has a guaranteed removal of all the illusions. Okay, you may gain more than 40% of depression, but hey, that's just a side effect. I need to, to, to give you the disclaimer, of course, to this one, uh, because possibly it's just nonsense. Possibly it's not. Uh, well, you don't know, because you're a skeptic. So, um, do whatever you want. It does not matter. There's no, ultimate, uh, there's no ultimate truth or meaning or whatever, so do, ever, do whatever you want. So, I'm now looking forward to selling a lot of pills to you later, whether these are meaning pills or skeptical pills. I hope that I can sell that to you. At least you're awake again now after a long day of a lot of lectures. But in this lecture, well, in the next one and a half hours, I'm going to combine both pills. Because I'm going to speak about the science of living a meaningful life. So to some extent, I will give you some of those pills of the local boost, and I'm going to give you some pills of the, the Skeptico. So you can have both pills, mix them up a little bit, and then you get something like, yeah, like meaning in life for skeptics. And it's a co so, uh, so it's like combining the idea that we can live a meaningful life, but at the same time we can do hardcore research on that. For many people that is like weird, like how can you do that? How can you make such a combination? And therefore I thought, well, I like challenges, so I'm going to work on that. Um, you've indeed seen also the flyers for my handbook uh, that has just been published two weeks ago. Um, and that is very much um, indeed like a summary of years of struggling, of looking at what do we actually know about effects? Because we know there's a lot of quack going on, a lot of nonsense. I would say if you just Google on meaning in life, or even with meaning of life, preferably with in capital letters, then you'll be able to find hundreds of millions of websites. And the question is, okay, what works? What is real? What makes sense? What does not make sense? What would help? So therefore, I've sifted through a lot of stuff, and I've been looking at, what do we actually really know? So that is what I'm going to do. I'm going to present you first 10 scientific facts. And I was told by the, by the organizers of today that you're quite a clever audience. So um, I hope that I'm not uh, underestimating your intelligence, but also not overestimating. But if I totally lose you, just I hope that I can pick it up from your uh, confused phases. Um, but I really try to summarize the 10 key points of what I have found in the, yeah, from all my research, of years of research. And after that, I'm going to speak about, okay, it's very nice knowing all the research, but what can we do about that in society? Because we know meaning is always in the context, like even how we're sitting here, we're having here like some agreements with each other that you're sitting there, you're not talking, and you're just listening. And so there's already a meaning going on. But how do you do that when it's in the, in the wider society? How can we create a meaningful society? Well, that is what I'm going to speak about after the mini break. And um, that's what I'm going to address there. But, pre but prepare yourself for the 10 scientific facts. Very much in line with the previous speaker, I can say that Although a term like a peak experience may sound really big, 
it's often just in our daily life. So in this cartoon I'm saying living a meaningful life is usually found in the small things in life. So it's really great if you have been going on a great holiday, but after that, most of the year, you're just in your mundane daily life and you're, you need to do the grocery shopping. How do you do that? Can that also be meaningful? Yes, so that is also one of the things that I really, in line with the previous speaker, will really focus on. It's like we can find meaning everywhere, in almost every situation. That's very much about a mindset. So this is often like a table that I use with a lot of my clients and that summarizes like a lot of the myths that we have about meaning. So I thought let's, let's just start with this. Um, so when we speak about meaning, meaning is not necessarily one big ultimate meaning of life in capital letters. Um, because there are many different ways how we can experience meaning. And it's not only for spiritual or religious people, because everyone lives a meaningful life. And the thing is like, the fact that you are here now, and you're not outside, um, in, yeah, I was gonna say in the sun, but now it's the rain, but um, you've already made the decision. So apparently, you already know for yourself what's meaningful to you, and being here is more meaningful. So, and you don't need to be religious or spiritual for knowing what's more meaningful or less meaningful. Just feel that, intuit it. And it's also not like totally stuck, like um, it can change over your lifetime. Like often the goals we had as a child, they, sound, they look very ridiculous now, I would say. Uh, but that's maturing, that is developing. Um, it's also unique for you. So no one else can take it over from you. No, you cannot say, okay, you decide what the meaning of my life is. Well, possibly you can. And some of the parents, they try to put uh, their meaning uh, onto their children. But in reality, the children still need to own that experience. They still need to make it, them, yeah, make it theirs. So, meaning is very much about taking responsibility, listening to yourself, listening to your own experiences. But also, actually, it's very much like an intuition. And that's also why I liked the previous session about Jung which is very much about using your intuition. And that's what all the scientific research is also saying. It's not about all those big theories or all those big books. It's in the first place, experiencing and living our lives. And while we're living our lives, feeling, connecting with ourselves and feeling, okay, it feels more meaningful to be here in this room than being outside and go shopping or just more meaningful. And listen to that. So meaning you cannot merely find in books and by thinking, I would say in the first place, you find that by intuition, exploring your inner life. And how do we know all those things? So I was asked to really kind of focus on the science of meaning. So um, this is one of the ways how a lot of scientists, they, they base all their conclusions on that often by using a lot of questionnaires and developing questionnaires. And it, by the way, a lot of those slides are actually also quite literally also from my book. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm seeing people making pictures, etc. So, uh, and you can actually also find a lot on the companion website, but feel free to make pictures. So, by questionnaires, we that's a way how we 
have like in a quite reliable way can say yes it's, it seems to work more or less and of course it's not an absolute truth like questionnaires are just questionnaires but they, they seem to validate all those ideas we have about meaning yes the experience of meaning is real and it's primarily um, a, perce a perception it's an experience so that was fact one fact two is the question can you give a definition of meaning? We heard from the previous speaker who was saying no. Um, well, um, I think to some extent, of course, he is right. Any definition is imperfect because in the end, it's your experience of meaning. So I totally agree there. However, as a scientist, I also need to put things in boxes a little bit, you know? That's, that's what we scientists sometimes do. So, how I often see it is living a meaningful life is like the total experience of sailing through life. Because some authors, some people, they focus on goals in life or a purpose. So that's like a lighthouse. And I'm saying, well, life is more than going towards that one particular goal, that one particular direction. There's more than that. So it's like a package deal. It's a lot of things that come together at the same time. And so what I say is, the definition of meaning has six components. So the first is, often in life, we have some specific goals or targets, purposes that we strive towards, or a certain direction, a motivation. And that's like when you're sailing, it's like when you have a, uh, when you have a lighthouse and the horizon, and you say, well, I'm going to sail in that direction. A lot of people can have, yeah, we can have those specific projects. However, we can change that. I mean, the lighthouses we had as a kid are not the same as the lighthouses we have now. Our aims in life now are different. Also, sailing is more than only having goals in life. It's also about following your values. For instance, when I sail, I refuse to use a motor. Some sailboats, they have a motor, you know. But I, say, I think, no, I really want to be, be in nature. So it's my value of not using a motor when I sail and just really, really use the sail. So that's also in life. It's follow your values, know your values. And that's also often about knowing your position. So being able to know, okay, this is where I am in my surroundings. So also knowing our place in the world, knowing I live here, I, I'm here now in the UK, and this and that is going on. This is my socioeconomic context. This is, these are my parents, etc. And I am in that context, in that context, I'm experiencing meaning. So that's also an important aspect of living a meaningful life. It's also about navigating through life. Because it's great if you know where you are in, in your environment, it's great if you have some aims, but you still need to know how to navigate. So that is knowing how to set specific goals, control the situation, adjust and, and evaluate your bearings. But in the first place is, do you dare and do you want to take your sailing boat out of the boathouse? And that's about self-worth. The idea, am I worthy enough to go sailing? Am I worthy enough to really live? Am I worthy to really live a meaningful life, to really listen to myself, to what's really truly meaningful? Or actually, am I not really listening to myself? Am I not totally, totally actually worthy because I prefer to follow others, prefer what society tells, what the media tell, or do I believe in myself? 
And it's great to have all those nice things in theory, but in the end, it's also about committing this to action, really doing it. And that's the thing that I often, a lot of my clients, they often come to me and they have everything in order, everything perfect. However, really do it, really in daily life, can be quite still a big step. There cannot be a lot of stuff going on there. And the final aspect of when we speak about meaning, meaning is also about existential skills. So it's about surviving storms. Because in life it's not always like as if we're like on a calm sea. No. You, you all know that. In, in life we have storms, we have rain, we have, we have terrible sun, we have heat waves. But how do you cope with that? And that's also part of living a meaningful life. So when people ask me, what is meaning in life? Can you define that? I would say, well, that's a complex one. Because all those different aspects, they are connected. You cannot get one without the other. And this is what the literature tells. It's like, it's about motivation. It's about our values. It's about understanding our place in our surroundings. It's about navigating and selfless, actual commitment, and also existential skills. Knowing how to deal with the troubles in life. So that is how I would define meaning. And you can just reflect on that for yourself, like is this something when you think about or when you feel was meaningful for you, does that, is it also something like that? So the thing is, this is just a very, this was only a very formal definition of meaning. But I already mentioned, meaning is unique. Every one of you have your own way of living a meaningful life. However, when I look in this room, and I would start speaking with every one of you, I would have some long sessions with you, I would start to see some trends, and but differences, but also some trends. Like, some people will f more find more meaning, for instance, in the family. Others will find uh, more meaning in, uh, in the job. Others in etc. So what I did, I, I became really curious. So I looked up all the studies that have ever been done worldwide in which people were asked, what is meaningful for you? What's important or valuable for you in life? I found 109 studies in 45,000 people worldwide from all continents. And every time again and again, I saw the same pattern. So what I dare to say is that I'm going to show you now five categories of meaning, or as I say in this picture, these are five streams of meaning, five waterfalls of meaning that we can, can tap into. I've seen these in all continents in the world. Now this seems to be how people experience meaning in life. So the first type of meanings that a lot of people experience are about materialistic and hedonistic meanings. So that's for instance about material possessions, your success in your job, success in your education, or just enjoying yourself. And uh, also health, nature. Um, so, but it's all very embodied or visible, very, to some extent, practical. Then we look at a second category, our self-oriented meanings. Self-oriented meanings are very much about a self. Like these are people who really find meaning in like self-development, 
self-efficacy, self-acceptance, autonomy, but also creativity, express yourself, uh, but also self-care. So this is all about the activities we do in life that we find important because they're about us. And then there are the social meanings. The social meanings is about, of course, social connections, intimacy, relationships, friendships. But it's also about belonging, belonging to a community. And uh, it's also about altruism. That an altruism means really contributing to the well-being of others, even though that may take some effort from yourself. And also about taking care of others. And also larger meanings. And larger meanings are about specific higher purposes that you can have in life. So when I speak for myself, I love giving talks like this. This is very meaningful for me because this is, all, this is like something that's more than only something materialistic that I do. I don't give those talks for money. Uh, okay, but don't tell the uh, organizers. But um, I mean, it's more than that. It's also more than only just for myself. Um, I'm doing this to really like, I hope that you will feel inspired. But also it's something bigger, something that drives me. And so I think a lot of people have, can have that. It's also about personal growth or about knowing our place in the bigger yeah, universe, the, the time space. But also really creating a better world for everyone. So it's about justice and ethics. And of course also spirituality and religion are part of this. And finally, there are those more abstract types of meanings. And these are more about, yeah, it's very difficult to put them in words. These are like, I call them existential philosophical meanings. Because sometimes when I speak with a person, yeah, I, I speak a lot with people when they are literally on the deathbed, when they don't have much time to live. And you may say, well, if a person is dying, they cannot really find meaning in that. Oh, yes, they can. And that's actually like a big skill to learn how can you die in a meaningful way. And one of the things that I've often heard from people who are dying um, is actually that they're saying, well, even this second that I'm still breathing, is meaningful. The fact that I'm breathing in the here and now is meaningful. The fact that I am I, I am who I am, that's meaningful. That I'm connected with you, connected to the world, connected to generations before me and after me, that's meaningful. That I'm free, that I can develop my own life. That I can be grateful for life as a gift. So these are more the abstract type of meanings. So possibly in the meantime, you've been thinking for yourself, okay, where am I? Where, the way how I live my life and, and how, how do I fit in here? Most likely you'll see that you'll tick many of those different boxes. Because that's often the case, that often we have multiple meanings, multiple activities that are meaningful in our lives. Some are more meaningful than others. And it's fine. And it's also good if you have multiple meanings. It makes you more resilient, more robust. For instance, I often help also people here from the city in London. And often, like, they focus so much only on the materialistic or hedonistic meanings. Yeah, and then there's a financial crisis. And their full life was about being a banker, and then they lose their job. And then they become, uh, then they feel life is meaningless, and they become suicidal. So, what I would really say is, and what I do is, or how I help people is to say, well, look around in your life. 
what else is meaningful? Because you always will find there are always other things that are meaningful as well. And what they also know from the big study, and there's 45,000 people worldwide, what they do know is that people who focus only on materialistic meanings, self-oriented meanings, their well-being is not as good as people who focus on social meanings or the larger meanings. So, as a psychologist, uh, I would say, for your mental health, please focus more on the social meanings and the larger types of meanings. And even, it's even like associated with better physical well-being, like blood pressure, tumor growth, a lot of those things. The, all the research on that influence from living a meaningful life on the biological aspects, it's still in its infancy, but we're really getting there. This is another very important thing, is the idea that meaninglessness is not the opposite of meaningfulness. That took myself also quite a long time, because often the idea is, yeah, either life is totally meaningless or it's totally meaningful. No, often both at the same time. So, in this picture, this little bit bloody picture, apologies, living a meaningful life is experiencing meaning without an instruction manual given at birth. It would have been so great, well, possibly not, but it, it, at least it would have been easy if at my birth, like, I would have been coming out of my mother with a manual that's telling, okay, this is how you should live your life. To some extent, that could have been quite easy. I personally think life would not have been as fulfilling as it is now because that instruction manual was not there. So what life is about is actually living a meaningful life without that instruction manual given at birth. So there are many big terms and apologies for, for, the, for the full slide, but these are all different types of meaninglessness uh, that uh, people said in the literature. And what we know is that those experiences can go hand in hand. So even like I think that the previous speaker, when he's speaking about Camus, I have a slightly different reading on Camus. Because when Camus was saying, well, in life, yeah, there's no really pre-given meaning and there's a lot of effort, like often we're stuck in patterns, like Sisyphus rolling, rolling that, that stone up the hill and when we're almost at the top of the hill, it comes back again. Well, still, Sisyphus was living a meaningful life because the thing is like, even in the routine, the habits, he, he may have started to develop like an inner sense of meaning like, or he could have started to connect with the birds around him. He could have connected with, um, he, he may have started to appreciate the, the texture of the stone, etc. So it's not only doom and gloom, but at the same time, there's, he's still rolling the stone, and that is quite a nasty situation, yes. But that's both at the same time. And that is the art of living, is being able to bear both at the same time. Being able to live a meaningful life, well, at the same time, knowing that there's not absolute certainty in her life, that instruction manual was not given at her birth. Also, we have limited options in her life, like, for instance, I cannot fly, I don't have wings on, on my back, you know? I have, to, I have to deal with that limitation. And still, though, I can fly, okay? I go into an aircraft that others have built. So, it's very much about that. Um, so, 
in this um, in this graph, you can see actually like there are two axes. I, I, I'm a official person, a little bit uh, statistical, but on, on the x axis, so, so on the horizontal one, you can see actually like people are actually not focusing on meaninglessness at all, and on the right, people who focus on that. And also on the top, people who focus on meaning, on the bottom, who people who focus not at meaning. And when you really look at such a, when you try to really put um, different therapies in it and different types of uh, uh, people, uh, they have a different point and we can discuss. I mean, this is just my intuitive way of positioning them. Like, for instance, I've put Jung there, but after the previous presentation, possibly I would put him a bit more up there, where he's also integrating both the meaningfulness and the meaninglessness. But what I'm saying here, what I'm trying to say is like a lot of therapies are, are already looking at that combination, are addressing both meaning, how can I live a meaningful life in a context where there's also a lot of meaninglessness and problems with meaning and limitations. And this is like a development that we've seen in the last 10 years, 10, 20 years, um, from people like Paul Wong and uh, Itai Ifsan, who speak about positive psychology 2.0 or positive existential psychology. They use many different terms. But there's now more and more research out there that's saying, well, we need that combination. The combination, that duality of saying, well, meaninglessness is not necessarily the opposite of meaningfulness. So with my clients, I often stay with them, with the sense of meaninglessness, and to say, well, don't, don't put that aside, because it's part of the, your lived reality. It's there. But despite of that, you will be able to live a meaningful life. Like, often I work with cancer patients, and often in society there's the myth, or almost the archetype, of the cancer patient who's, who is a fighter, like a hero. You see that often in a lot of those commercials, you know. And I think, sorry, but if you have cancer, in the first place, you don't feel like a hero. You feel bad. <laughs> You're exhausted. However, that's not the final answer. That's what I'm telling my clients. I tell, well, of course, there are cancer is terrible, but I will be able to help you to live a meaningful and satisfying life despite of those limitations. But not by denying the reality. Like a lot of those commercials are saying, well, if you have cancer, if you have a COPD, if you have a heart attack, a stroke, you must be strong. Not necessarily. But it's not at the same time the final answer. So what I'm saying is like, try to combine the meaninglessness and the meaningfulness at the same time. And we know a lot of research how people are able to do that. And that people really benefit from that. But then the question is, Okay, how do we actually develop that? If, if we, how, how can we combine that sense of meaning and the meaninglessness? Because that, that's quite a struggle. Like, how, how do we build that sense? And yeah, so I actually just did a scoping review, as, as they say, or in other terms, I just started to just Google. Um, and I tried to find what people are writing and try to make sense of that. Um, of course, there was too much on it uh, on the internet, I don't need to tell you that. But when I tried to make sense of it, of what people were saying, is yeah, I often summarize it in a triangle. And again, this is not the perfect final science, oh no. But it, 
this is like a sense that I'm getting from the literature. It's saying living a meaningful life, it's about finding a balance. It's a balancing act. And it's a balancing act between the three corners of a triangle. On the one hand, it's about the things that we can or that we cannot do. So that's, for instance, about our socio-cultural context, the people that we grew up with, uh, our teachers at school, that our peers, etc. Um, also, our life stage is also important. So these are things that we cannot really change, they're given. And also things that we think that we must, or that we thought things that we must do, like we must pay our taxes. It may feel very meaningful for you to not pay your tax, <laughs> but I'm afraid that you must pay your taxes. So, of course, from our background, we have also a lot of things that we think we must do from our parents, like you must behave, like you must sit still in the room and keep your mouth shut when I'm talking. And I really appreciate that, so keep it that way. Uh, <laughs> at, the end, at the end, there will be interaction, and I'll go to the pub, so more than enough option there. But these are all the musts, you know? We have so many musts all the time. So some people call that actually masturbation. Um, so that's also part of our life, part of the tensions of the balancing act that we do. And also, in the end, it's also about what do you want? So if that is like a context, things we can, cannot do, things we think we must do. What do I want? Where am I? What, what feels intuitively really authentic? What, what feels good? So it's a balancing act. And, and that's like a big challenge for people. And that's what I'm doing with a lot of my clients. It's balancing all the time. And sometimes there's a, a little bit too much of things I think I must. Sometimes I feel too much focusing on what I can or cannot. So we're like balancing all the time. And I, I feel like a juggler. I'm literally like, now that I'm telling, like holding all those balls up in the air, in the sky, you know. So meaning develops as the interaction between what you must, can, and want to do in your life. But I've already mentioned, like, meaning is not really a thing in the head. Whoops, we're going too quick. It is because it often is like really riding the waves. Like, uh, so living a meaningful life is surfing the waves of life. Like, you can see that right up a corner there's a surfer. And some other people, they can just be very narcissistically focusing on themselves and in a small pool and reflecting on themselves but actually not really living a true, meaningful life. So that's the thing. That's one of the things that I often see. It's a big difference. Like in our daily lives, let's start there. And you can already see the word peak experience here. That refers actually also to Maslow. So in our daily life, we are more like inside a hot flow of experiencing. Or I hope that you are. When life is good, when like some basic conditions are fulfilled, we are like inside a flow. So uh, Michel uh, Csikszentmihalyi has also written a book about that. It's called, that is called flow. It's not reflected. It's just, you just live your life and it just feels meaningful. And it seems as if things go automatically and things are automatically meaningful. It's, um, yeah, and often when you listen to how people speak about the life situation, it's all often like, um, with, with, with in the present particle, like, I feel I am living meaningful life. 
I'm doing something good. That's often just listen how people speak. However, there are also times that we don't feel that we're in a flow. The times that people even start to speak about the meaning of life in capitals. They start to theorize about meaning. They start to reflect. Or they have explicit questions about meaning. These are often the clients who come to my sessions. And that's what we call hyper-reflection. So that means people are so much in the head. They are reflecting and asking themselves questions. And the thing is, the more you theorize about your life, the less likely it is that you will actually be in that hot flow of your daily life. So the mere process of reflecting and reflecting and reflecting, or also the mere process of wanting something. So want, I must become a pilot. I must, I must, I must. I have no alternative. The more you do that, the further away you actually will be from your experience of flow, of living a meaningful life. And so this is also about like when people are, are for instance, like in a crisis. When people are in a crisis, then they are like so much in the head space, so much asking all the explicit questions and not knowing how can I live that, that meaningful life again? How can I be in that flow again? I, I don't know. And that can be the result from life development. For instance, also if in the past their parents or the context was saying, you must do this, you must do that. Or if life is really limiting you, like you cannot do this, you cannot do that. That can really, really kick you out of the flow of daily life. But also certain cultures, or if you don't have enough self-insight, you can really have difficulties getting into the flow of daily life, of a meaningful life. And that's a pity. Because the ability to be in that flow of a meaningful life, of really living a meaningful life, that's so important for our physical and our mental well-being. Yeah, this is just a slide full of a lot of scientific stuff where I'm actually saying nothing else than meaning is good for your health. Your mental health, your physical health, it is. And we know that from a lot of studies. I can cite you hundreds or thousands of studies, but it is really important. So... Therefore, often when people have problems living a meaningful life, subsequently they start to become depressed, anxious, psychotic, etc. So also the other way around is I would always, as a psychologist, always, as one of my hypotheses, when I see a client who comes to me saying, I am depressed, one of my first questions, or not one of my first questions, but one of the many questions is always about, okay, how does life feel for you? What, what has been meaningful before you became depressed? What's going on there? And I'm not saying that all psych psychological problems are about problems with meaning. Oh, absolutely not. That will be totally reductionistic. Um, so I'm always really clear about making that distinction. There are people where actually the problems, the psychological problems lie in something else, but there can be some people Particularly people in life crisis, people at transition points in their lives and boundary situations in their life, physically ill people, people who have immigrated, people who have graduated, people who are retiring. So people at all those crossing points in their life. When you then start to have some mental health problems, then it's always one of my hypotheses that I like to check. 
Is there something about yeah, what's meaningful for you? Are you able to, do, to live that meaningful life you want? And let's speak then a little bit about mental hair care. <laughs> oh, sorry, I mean mental health care. Apologies. So this is an overview of 38 or 30 schools on that explicitly give attention to meaning. Um, you don't need to read it, it's too small, I know. Um, but this is just showing that there are many different schools, psychotherapeutic schools or coaching schools, um, or different, yeah, different coaching forms that give attention to meaning. And I would say every good therapist or coach or person working with people with meaning should help people to live a more meaningful life. Otherwise, you're a very bad uh, people um, uh, a practitioner, I would say. <laughs> so I see it more like as a continuum. Like there are some therapists who give relatively little systematic and explicit attention to meaning, and there are those, yeah, practitioners who give a lot of systematic and explicit attention to meaning. So, uh, yeah, and I'm trying to be really, really on that side, obviously, of the systematic and explicit attention to meaning. Um, but for instance, behavior therapists, traditionally, they would not give so much attention to that. Although I've recently been, I've recently been in, some in some debates in some journals, and a lot of behaviorists are now also going more towards, yes, we do need attention for this. It does matter. So, yeah, all good therapists say have in common that they help people uh, to live a meaningful life. Yeah. So... And I'm absolutely not expecting you to understand this table or this, this, uh, this graph, of course not. Um, this is just one of the examples of a complex model of um, actually physical disease. This is what happens like when you, for instance, are confronted with a physical disease, which is chronic or life-threatening. And this is about the psychological impact. So what I did is I looked at all the big medical models or the psychological models about medical diseases. So how do people cope with it psychologically? How, how can you cope with problems? And I just forget what it's actually saying. The only thing is you see is there's this gray area, the gray box, and that is saying uh, the central clinical problem is how can I live a meaningful and satisfying life despite the physical, psychological and existential limitations of my disease. This is what we're seeing in more and more research. Um, that a lot of psychological coping with uh, physical disease, but also with other life transitions or life boundaries, is actually about a question. And that's again about the duality, about a balancing act between, like on the one hand there's a disease, not denying that, it's reality, there's a lot of meaninglessness in it. Uh, my cancer has no meaning. For instance, I hear people say, but despite of that, I can live a meaningful life. So it's, that seems to be the essence of a lot of the latest trends in research. Another example is I've been looking at particularly at cardiovascular disease uh, recently. And what I discovered is, um, yeah, again, you can see here in the center of my model, again, there's meaning. Uh, uh, but what I've discovered is that the relationship between uh, the likelihood that you can get cardiovascular disease or cardiovascular disease again um, 
actually it's more important to live a meaningful life than taking statins. The pharmaceutical industry likes to tell us, yes, um, take statins, uh, and a lot of their research seems to be quite solid, and I would say, I'm not saying don't take them, I'm not saying that. Please follow your doctor's orders. But at the same time, we do know that they have some effect on the likelihood and on the, disc on the recovery from cardiovascular disease. However, living a meaningful life is much stronger. So uh, I hope that in like 10, 20, 30 years time, that when you go to the doctor, the doctor says, well, it seems that you may have some cardiovascular problems. And I prescribe you some statins, and next to that, I prescribe you a meaningful life. <laughs> I really hope that that will happen. Yes, and uh, just the last bit for a small break is the question. Um, I've been saying that I am doing a lot of practice as well with clients and I train therapists, etc. But what do I actually do? What do I do in a session? So, again, what I did is I looked in the literature. Well, what do all those meetings and the therapists do? All those different schools, what do they more or less do? And what do we know really works? So, I've summarized it in five groups. And that's more or less what I do now in my therapies. So first there are what I call assessment skills. So I just check with the client, okay, is meaning relevant for you? Possibly it's not. And that's fine, then we're going to use a different type of therapy, but hey, first I need to check if it's relevant. Then I look at some meaning-specific skills that we discuss explicit, like, okay, what's meaningful for you, what's not meaningful, etc. Then I also speak about the therapeutic relationship. I think Mick Cooper has spoken about that a little bit this morning about the importance of actually connecting with your client and working at relational depth. Because you cannot find meaning in conversation with an other person when there's not also like a depth in your relationship. So that's crucial that you have a good relationship. And then there's a group that I call phenomenological, experiential and mindfulness skills. So in other terms, these are skills that you use as a therapist to catch you out of your head. And to just experience, follow your intuition, and really accept your own experiences, take them serious, and explore them. So it's a lot of creativity exercises as well. And that's also where I also cite Jung quite a lot. It is that direction, it is that, that other dimension. Finally, there are also some existential skills involved. And that has very much to do about yeah, the duality that I have been speaking about all the time, the balancing act, for, uh, like, okay, there's meaninglessness, but also meaningfulness. And don't put all that meaninglessness aside, but that's integrated. Have both at the same time. So this is more or less what I do as a therapist. Sounds doable, doesn't it? Um, oh, that was nasty of me. Um, so the last thing that I will say is, Okay, very nice that I'm saying that uh, it may be simple to do, and, um, but does it really work? Um, I did a large study and I found, yes, it does work very well. So compared with other types of studies, other types of therapies, this type of meaning-centered therapy has very large effects on the psychological well-being, the quality of life and the physical well-being of clients. So you can really see that people really live a much better life. Particularly like they say it, they feel more confident, they, they, um, uh, yeah, they live a more meaningful life. They also have less depression, anxiety, etc. And even their physical well-being is better. 
Like often what I have is that I've been asked to come to see a, to see a physically ill patient. And I speak with them and yeah, the doctor had told me beforehand, like, this client is going to die soon. But a couple of months later, the doctor comes back to me and says, what did you do? That person, I expected her to die. And she's still alive. <laughs> I've had it several times. And that, and that, I'm not saying like I'm a miraculous doctor. Oh no, absolutely not. But, uh, or, okay. But uh, <laughs> what I'm saying, what I'm saying, um, I am a miraculous doctor. I'm really good. Um, no, but like, there is the thing like to contribute to someone to live a more meaningful life. That is helpful. That does contribute to better well-being and better health. And this is what I do in a session. So in the beginning, yeah, on the left side, you can see the topics I discuss. So in the beginning, and uh, so I usually have like approximately 10 sessions or something like that. So first I speak with my clients about, okay, what is meaning? How is it relevant for you or is it not relevant? And then I speak about those five different types of meaning. You remember the materialistic meanings, hedonistic, self-oriented, social, higher, uh, and the existential meanings. So I discuss those one session each, and we explore how important is that. And then we, then we apply that to daily life. And within a specific session, uh, I have some bit of theory. We just do some experiential exercises, like some mindfulness, etc. And then we make some conclusions, and yeah, what can you do with that in your daily life? So this is really how it seems to work yeah, in your life. So this is very nice. This is all on individual level, like what I do with individual clients. But let's make a very big step after the break to society. How can we create a society in general where we can live a more meaningful life? Where everyone is able to live a meaningful life, also if they don't come to see me as client. So how can we create a more meaningful economy? And that's a very simple thing, it's a very simple conclusion, so prepare yourself for that. So, um, yeah, I'll see you after this short break. I would like to introduce Godwin Rolf to you. Godwin Rolf, you may not know him. It's very unlikely you know him. Godwin Rolf is a fictional character, let's start there, um, who I made up in my mind, but... Um, Godwin Rolf is a farmer somewhere in most likely what we call now the Midlands and he lives around the year 1000 after Christ. Godwin is born in a farmer's family. His parents were farmers, his grandparents were farmers. He lives in his community in the local village. When he was born it was already all for sure he was going to be a farmer as well. <coughs> However, he was not the oldest son, because the oldest son inherited the farm. He simply worked on the farm of his older brother. And, yeah, and he was not only a farmer. What he did was, in the weekends, there was church, obviously. And there were the saints' days, etc. These were like the rhythms of nature, the rhythms of the church, and of course, he had to obey to the lords of the land, etc. He had to follow that. And he did not question that. That was his life. He didn't know any better. And now, someone from this room 
has heard my presentation. And someone also has in their own house a time machine. And some of you, one person in this audience, I know will do that later tonight. I know when you come home, you'll use your time machine and try to find Godwin Rolf. And imagine by a miracle you meet him. And then you meet Godwin and you say, just assuming you still speak approximately <laughs> the same language, but hey. And you ask Godwin, Godwin, what is the meaning in your life? Godwin would most likely look at you like, what are you asking? I'm not asked that question. I'm not asked a question about meaning in life. That, that, that's a nonsense question. I simply grew up here. I'm, I was born to be a farmer. And, well, yeah, the things I have to serve, like, the lords of the land. I have to serve the church. That's just my life. That, that's a given. Like, and meaning of my life? It's just I just have my position in this social order where, like, I'm below the people in the church and below the kings and God is at the highest and below me there are the animals and so there, there's like this, this ladder and I'm just like at birth I was given this particular position on this ladder and that's who I am and that's where my life will be. So our idea that we have nowadays in modern society to ask the question what's the meaning of my life is an extremely modern invention. Of course, we have had some individuals, like in the ancient Greek, or some of the great uh, uh, church uh, fathers, or also in some of the big religions, where you also read a lot of the early Vedic texts. Yes, they had great ideas. But not for most of the ordinary people. Ordinary people, citizens like you and me, would not ask those questions themselves. No. It would simply fit your place in a societal ladder. So, the question about meaning is a very unique question. That's the only thing from our era. And the problem is like that even like in the last century it became even worse. And that's what I'm going to speak about in this last bit. Is that I'm saying like... It even has influenced our economic system. Our e economic system is built around it. And the question is, how can we have a more meaningful economy? So let's start here. I've already told this a little bit to you. Like that I was saying now, Godwin Rolf and his family, they lived on this ladder. Like the idea that like that God is here at the top, there are the clergy, there are the kings, etc. And the farmers, they serve them, etc. So, and that's simply how, how you were, that was given. Like your personal meaning was about the same as a social meaning that that was given. That was also same as like, yeah, that's also like my afterlife is also going there. That's just, just doing my role. Like also what Jesus was also speaking about is about, yeah, all the different parts of the body have their own function in the totality. So this idea was most likely quite dominant in European countries, Western countries, until the Middle Ages. But then, but then, what happened in the 15th and 16th century is that ladder started to tumble down. Because people started to think, well, why should I, 
accept this position on this ladder? Why should I accept that there is a pre-given ladder at my birth? It's almost like that instruction manual given at my birth. No, that's nonsense. No one can tell me like that I need to fulfill this role as a farmer because I would like to become a fireman and I will do that. And yeah, no one can tell me that is otherwise because those letters are just social constructs. Like it's just a stupid idea that we as a society have created that kings are better than laymen or, or clergy is better. Why? So that is what happened in like 15th, 16th century. And the alternative metaphor, the alternative for the letter is flat earth. So the idea is even now like nowadays like just follow or just do what you like, make it very simple. Um, but also the idea like meaning, well, it's really great, like all those ideas that we speak about meaning and fulfilling our position, etc. But in the end, that's all socially determined. Like that's already like determined by my parents, but also genetically or bi biologically, it, it's just neurons, you know? And so people became very skeptical. People became very skeptical about, is meaning really like, yeah, do we really know that? And that's of course what we know from the scientific era that started around the 16th century with all the big uh, experiments, the scientific experiments, etc. And then the people, they started to question the letter that was given before that. Um, people started to question like, okay, possibly there Actually, there's no meaning to life at all, or that there's no, there's no hierarchy, there's no order, there's no... Yeah, possibly they're just neurons, there's just a material world, possibly it's just that. So, yeah, and this is like a perspective that's very dominant since the Enlightenment. So the idea of a flat earth is that of a ladder. However, it doesn't stop there, because although the earth may be flat, like... We may not absolutely know what is absolute meaning and like what we think is meaningful is just determined by our social and our biological context. Okay, okay. But we can build skyscrapers. And we know very much that they're human made. We know. Like, that is the idea that we tell each other, like, you must live life to the max. You must use your talents. Like, I love that commercial from Pepsi Max, that's literally saying as a slogan, live life to the max. And that seems to be the big motto of our era, live life to the max. Whatever it is, just pick something random, but whatever you do, do it to the max. <laughs> that's what Max Pepsi Max is saying. So it's almost like meaning has become something very random, but also something we think we can make. And the thing is, if you are not living a meaningful life, then you have not made it. You, it's your problem because you have not used your opportunities that you had in your life. <laughs> so it's very much about maximizing, striving towards goals. It's very technical. So like what I mentioned before, that's like only focusing on the lighthouse and forgetting the rest of the story. Now it's only like putting goals, high goals, and try to maximize that. And it's very much also focused on materialistic, hedonistic and self-oriented meanings. <coughs> and this is very much what you see is nowadays dominant. So this is the metaphor of the skyscraper. That are human-made, we know that are human-made, but still we follow them. So we come from the ladder that was pre-given at our birth. 
Then we thought, okay, let's get rid of all the ladders. There's a flat earth. But then we thought, okay, that's not enough. We just try to maximize. Whatever we do, just random ideas about meaning. We just create our own skyscrapers. This is where we are now. Is there an alternative? Yes. Oh, yeah. This is like um, living a meaningful life is not for sale. It's like meaning in a minute. It, it's like the pills that I showed you at the beginning. That idea that you can almost like buy meaning as if from the shelves in the shop. When I make it so clear, of course you say, of course I cannot buy meaning pills. That's ridiculous. But next time when you go to the supermarket, have a think about that. Because you are buying products because you think they give you a good meaning. So, the alternative for this, for the alternative for either those um, ladders, flat earths or skyscrapers, an alternative are mountains. So, the idea is, I have already told you at the beginning, you know, that I'm going to speak about meaning in life for skeptics. That's this. So, I also think, well, I don't know whether there's like an ultimate meaning in life or... It's good, I think, to be critical, to be very skeptical about things that we think are meaningful. It's important to really question ourselves like, is this really what I want? Or is this what my parents told me that I want? Or is this what society wants me, wants me to want? It's important to ask us questions. However, when we start to analyze our own experiences, we will experience that there's more than flat earth. We will experience that certain things are more meaningful than others. Like you're here now today, in this room. You're not outside, you're not now drinking in the pub. You're just going to do that later, hopefully. Um, but so, that means like this experience is for you more meaningful, or at least was in your decision-making process felt more meaningful to come here. But how do you know that? How do you know that this may be more meaningful. There's something inside you that you go inside yourself, most likely intuitively, you, most likely not very theoretical, it's just, you just know, like, yeah, just like that. I just feels okay to, to go here to a day about meaning, but just, just that, yeah, just intuitively, just, can't just want that. It's precisely. But that means that there's a difference than only flat earth, like, that in your experience, in your lived experience, there are differences. There are differences between meaningful and less meaningful experiences. So, what I often say is that's like mountains. It's like having a personal meaning is, you feel like there's a hierarchy. So certain things are more meaningful than others. And that you also really do that in your life. But at the same time, also staying very critical about it. Because I'm not saying, just follow what your intuition is saying. Oh no. Always combine that again with the inner skeptic. So that is what I call, or not what I call, what others call phenomenology. Phenomenology is about intuitively differentiating what is authentic from less authentic. So I often compare that with unpeeling. So living a meaningful life is unpeeling your feelings until you find your heart. So it is like continuously that you ask yourself, okay, is this really meaningful? Is this not meaningful? Where does this meaning come from? Is this just society that wants me to do this? Is that continuous unpeeling, unpeeling, unpeeling until you reach some deeper levels. 
And then you can ask the, the question like, after all that unpeeling, is there something left? Is there like an absolute truth, an absolute meaning? I don't know. I'm not God, so I don't know what's absolutely true or not. I don't know. But what I do know is that people can go through this process, that people can go, that people can unpeel their feelings. People can say, this feels more meaningful than that. I know, I've seen that. And the fact that you're here in this room shows that you're able to make those decisions for yourself. There's more meaningful in my life to do than other things. So this is the combination, in, and what I'm saying in many, many different words, is that I'm saying, well, we live now in an era where we can actually combine listening to ourselves, listening to our own intuition, that sense where we can have a sense of what's meaningful, what's less meaningful, and combining that with a self-critical unpeeling. So this is meaning in life for skeptics. This is where we can combine both. Use your skepticism and use your sense of what's meaningful. So, in summary, like I've been telling a lot about modern Western history that I was saying, well, when Godwin Rolf, he had the idea that he was born on a certain position in the social divine cosmic ladder. And then we started to doubt, is there actually such a ladder? And is there possibly nothing else than, yeah, mere material world and genetics, etc. And then I said, well, in the 20th century, people started to create skyscrapers. People started to, yeah, wanting to maximize whatever you do, whatever you feel, just make it as big as possible. And then I'm saying, well, we can mix both. We can say both, let's listen to yourself, what's meaningful to you, and being critical. Combine both, you can. And I have to say that recently I've started to go back to some older religions. And it's really interesting that you, Particularly in a lot of Eastern religions, you can see a lot of stuff like this, where they're already speaking about it. And now the question is like, okay, this is like quite abstract story about the history, the modern history of meaning. But what does it mean here and now in our economy? In literally when you go to the shops, what does this mean? I've started to observe something that I call the capitalist life syndrome. So the capitalist life syndrome is very much what I just before uh, described as the idea about skyscrapers. The idea that, well, I'm going to say that now in a second actually. So the capitalist life syndrome it's actually like the title comes from the idea of the Stockholm Syndrome. So the Stockholm Syndrome, that happened when there was a hijack, or when, when there was like, so people were captured. But the people who were captured started to identify and even defend the people who were taking them hostage. And that's called the Stockholm Syndrome. And in a similar way, a lot of people are having the same with the capitalist life. We're defending a system that may actually not be good for them. So, what is the capitalist life syndrome then about? In the first place, this capitalist life, the way how we live our lives now in uh, capitalist economies, it's very much around materialistic, hedonistic and self-oriented types of meaning. 
That's also what I found in a big study in those 45,000 people worldwide. Is the people in Western countries where capitalism is big, countries like the United States, countries like the UK, in those countries, people focus much more on this materialistic, hedonistic, and self-oriented types of meaning. And like social or larger or the more existential types of meaning are not that important. And remember what I've told you about that, is those materialistic meanings, hedonistic meanings, are also associated with worse mental health. And that's why also there's a big mental health crisis now in the West, and not in non-Western countries. The other thing is also a very functionalistic approach to meaning. By functionalism, is it coming now? No. By functionalism, I mean the idea that you can buy meaning in the shop. So it's very much the idea like, I can make it, I can make meaning. So it's like you just go on a retreat or you go on the big holiday that will give you that big, peak experience in your life, and then you're done. Then your life is settled, you're living a total brilliant life very functionalistic, so it becomes a thing you do, a thing you can literally buy, an experience you buy. And also, as part of the capitalist life syndrome, it's also people who start to defend this way of living, to defend really like also buying stuff, career, etc., that those things are important for them. But at the same time feeling trapped. Like the Stockholm Syndrome. So I've worked a lot with people here also in the city. And they said that is totally the paradox that I see in them. Where they're saying, well, I was, I've had like a person sitting in my room who was saying, yes, I'm one of the person who was also responsible for the financial crash. So it's a, it's a terrible thing that I'm part of and I've created that. And, but I am, on the one hand, I'm... I like it, or it, it's like what I believe in, and on the other hand, it's, I feel trapped, and I feel... So it's a duality, like, like the Stockholm Syndrome, where the people who, are, who have been captured are starting to identify themselves with it, while actually at the same time still feeling, feeling trapped. It's that sense. And also not knowing an alternative. And this has large existential consequences, where you just read a lot of literature about how people live their lives in this current economic system. A lot of people, a lot of texts, a lot of philosophers write about it, and they speak about things like indecisiveness, uncertainty, anxiety, a lot of those big existential questions that people ask themselves. Just go to any bookstore about modern thinking, and it's about that. It will all be about that. And, like what I mentioned, the consequence of this is also large psychological concerns. Never in the West have we seen as many people with psychological problems as nowadays. And particularly here in London, we are one of the worst places on earth. And from my research I would say that has to, it seems to be correlated with a strong focus on the capitalist life. So this is also part of the economic market. So I already mentioned functionalism. So that is the idea, that meaning is a function on the economic market. <coughs> Can I ask you a question? Who has been in love? Ah, I'm so happy. <laughs> um, who thinks that love is a total product from the market and nothing else than that. 
No one is raising their hand. No one. Okay, a little bit, a little bit. But the thing is, when I'm reading what economists write about love, it's something like this. It can be said that M.I., men I, loves F.J., female J, inner welfare enters his uh, utility function and perhaps also if M.I. values emotional and physical contact with F.J. That is love. Okay. And of course, this is one of the worst citations that I've been able to find, obviously. <laughs> you get that. But I think that you also get what I'm saying here. It's... Um, Love is not only merely love for the sake of love. It's the way how economists seem to look at it. It's like it's a function on the economic market, something you can manipulate. You know, Valentine was invented by companies to sell more stupid cards and chocolates. And uh, please, I hope that you, if you have a partner or you want to have a partner, like do as if every day is Valentine and not only on that one day that will help the big companies to get more money. And also, like, uh, don't only watch watch uh, and don't only watch Love Island and Big Brother and all those other type of commercial love um, things on television, but also really, really love, really do it, be in love, experience it. So meaning, even like the big things, like meaning, as is seen by economists as a function of the economic market, and also something we can demand from life. Like, okay, I need love. What am I going to do? Uh, lovematch.com. I don't know whether the site exists. Uh, I think you know all those websites better than I do, possibly. But um, So it's the idea. We can buy meaning, you know? We, we can demand it, like love on demand. And so also our ideas about, like, the capitalist system in, is very much based on the idea like, okay, let's make sure people can do that. Okay, let's, let's not oppress people. Indeed, all those musts, get rid of that. And, but the people can really are free to really, yeah, go on the internet and find your partner. Yes, let's, let's create an opportunity. So that's a nice function. That sounds very liberal, sounds great. Sounds very human. However, that's not necessarily the same as a positive freedom, because that's a negative freedom. It's a freedom from oppression, which is brilliant. We need everyone on earth deserves that, in my personal, humble opinion. However, there's also the thing about, uh, do you also have the opportunities? Do you have the skills? Do you have the money? Do you have the money to actually get access to the internet? and to really buy, actually, an account where you can find the love of your life. Like the big meaning in your life, to find that big love of your life, you need to have money to go online. So it all starts with money, not love. So what you see is, in this functionalistic context, our relationships become, as they call that, commodification. Um, one of those left terms, big terms, is, in other terms, it becomes something of the market, the idea that like, it's not about love, it's about relationships as part of the market, part of the system, but also in your work, like our work context, like for Godwin Rolf, the people around him were just people around him, they were his family, but also the co-workers, they were, but nowadays it's all separated. Like, uh, it becomes bureaucratic, we become disconnected from, yeah, from truly meaningful relationships, possibly. 
However, living a meaningful life is more than climbing that stair of success, that idea of maximizing our life, of maximizing whatever we do, of maximizing that function. It's more than that. Like the idea is like, okay, you can find a partner online, and if this partner doesn't work, use another one, and then use another one. Almost boasting about the number of people who you've had. But in the end, you only need to have one partner in your full life. And it's also about being realistic. Instead of saying, live life to the max, also being realistic. There's also not imprisoning yourself by what others like, what we too often do in the system. It's like um, going on almost like on holiday or doing, going to those parties to show off on Facebook. Nothing we made to deliberately, but implicitly. So a lot of those economists, those theorists, they say, well, the economic system is value-free. It's nowhere, it's merely an, an economic market where people can give their products and sell the products, nothing else. It's totally neutral. It's not about living a meaningful life. It's no, no, it's, it's just a free place. No, no, nothing else than that. That's the illusion we're giving, we're being given about the market. Let's go to Adam Smith. Okay, let, I'm not going to do this full citation. This is a story about the invisible hand. Possibly you've heard about that. So is Adam Smith is like the godfather of, of, of capitalism and, and a lot of the neoliberals have totally twisted him, etc. But all of them go back to Adam Smith and some of the other economists from his time. And he was saying that the economy is based on self-oriented meanings, a materialistic meanings. Because he was saying... It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. So it's saying only due to our selfish interest in getting money, only for that reason does the economy yeah, flourish. Because the thing is like, okay, a person starts a bakery, starts to bake bread, and that will benefit for the economy, and that's just for money. That is what literally Adam Smith was saying. And the current system is very much based on this idea that the economy thrives thanks to people focusing on money. So Adam Smith and also a lot of the other economic authors, they focus a lot on bakers as an example. It happens that I am from a family of bakers. This is Tarfo. The folk is like from a last name Foss, and Tar is Tarve, that is, is something like grain in Dutch. So, and as you can see, oh no, it's, it's here it's saying uw bakker, uw dokter. So that means um, your bakery, your doctor. And this is, this is not only a detail, but quite crucial. Because what my grand-grandfather, Marius Foss, what he discovered in, I think it was, 1870, 1880, he discovered that a lot of people fall ill due to the bread. It was not because my family are very bad bakers. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, but everyone felt ill at the time. Because the grain, you cannot store them for a long time. What my grand-grandfather invented is actually a way to store grains, to make the bread, to etc., in a way that it would not rotten, particularly in wintertime. He started to build factories 
and to standardize the product and the quality. And that is also why people started to eat bread, which did not make them ill. So I started to look around, and, uh, or actually not look around, speak around with a lot of family members and relatives. Why did he start to invent that product? Did he think, okay, I'm gonna create a new type of bread that's gonna give us shitloads of money. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no. He started with that. Like, I, I was speaking with my uncle just a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying, what his childhood memories from him were, he was just a creative mind. He just always had to invent something. He always need, needed to be creative. So, the economy was supported, was improved, not out of his self-interest, but out of his creativity, because he could not sit still. He was that type of person. <laughs> so there's a totally different type of meaning. And so, when we look back, these are the five different types of meaning. So my grandfather, of course, he hoped that he could sell some bread. In the end, he was not a very successful salesman. His sons, my grandfather, were a bit better, but yeah. There was, of course, a thing about he really liked the self-expression, the creativity, that, that was part of it. But also, he really, really wanted to help people. He really solved it as a problem, people dying from bad bread. And also, like, he wanted to do something bigger with his life and thinking, I have those opportunities, I have those skills, what can I do with that? Very deliberate, really like, that was the goal of his life. And also, it was also part of the legacy of the family Foss. He felt we're part of that big bakery family and we need to do something with that legacy. So what you see is the economy like was improved not only by the selfish interests that Adam Smith was speaking about or that, for instance, uh, uh, Friedman is speaking uh, about or Hayek. That's total nonsense. All the research on psychology, on research and innovation show that economy is usually not only boosted by self-interest, but by many other types of meanings. So if the economy is built on many different types of meaningful reasons why people live their lives, but then we have an economic system with economists who influence politicians, who try to enforce that very narrow focus on the materialistic and hedonistic stuff, they try to enforce that on people who actually have all those different meanings, that doesn't fit. There's a problem. Because in, in our daily life, we love for the sake of love. That's not an economic function. We have many different reasons why we are economically active. Many reasons why we interact with each other. And in daily life, we don't really reflect on that. We just live. While the economic model is much more functionalistic, Focus on the materialistic, self-oriented types of meanings. So there's a mismatch there. It's going wrong. So what do they need? They. It's interventions. Manipulate their meaning. Tell us what we must do. So commercials. I've already told the commercial from Pepsi. But so let's now go to Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola is saying, have a Coke and a smile. Coke adds life. Who has had a Coca-Cola in their life? <laughs> Did it give you a big smile? <laughs> and has it added to your life? Hmm, weird. They're, they're saying that it does. They're, they're really saying it. It, it. I must believe the commercial. But you're saying that it's not. Yeah. That, that's weird. 
Sorry? Did it? Okay, for a moment, precisely. For a moment, it may do. For a moment, I think, ah. And you can also have that with Pepsi and with all the other brands before they start to accuse me of uh, preferring one brand. No, but what you get it, what I'm saying here, is they manipulate us. The thing is, Coke is just a very brief taste in the tongue and in the mouth, and after that, it's gone. And after like half an hour, you have a very big sugar dip. It was different at a time when they had real coke in it, cocaine, I think, but hey, that's not a story. <laughs> Panasonic, ideas for life. That's great, I would like to have some more ideas for life. I'm going to buy a Panasonic. <laughs> or Google, don't be evil. I was just planning to be really evil today, but yeah, Google was saying I'm not going to do that. And of course, we also know the slogan that Facebook is using, and that's a very serious one. Facebook is, of course, saying, wasting people's lives since 2004. <laughs> Why is that not their slogan? I don't know. <laughs> so you get what they're doing. Because what actually what they have is they're just selling a product. But they give us the feeling that is meaningful. So they add to the functionality of the product, they add something that we think is meaningful. So they, mean, they must manipulate our meaning. A created idea that this is meaningful. And that's like the idea from Bernays. Bernays, who was the cousin from Sigmund Freud. See, and Bernays invented public relations. So he used all the insights from his uncle Freud to literally manipulate what people think about products. For instance, a good example of that is cigarettes. In his time, women did not smoke. That was not done. So the tobacco industry went to him and asked, well, we only can sell to the men, not to the women. How can we sell more products? He started to think, he thought, well, I need to sell cigarettes to women. At the same time, there was a suffragette movement in New York and I believe it was 1911, at a big suffragette march, he had given all the women a cigarette, and he didn't call them cigarettes, he called them torches of freedom. <laughs> and that is actually like, that campaign was extremely successful, because actually still when you Google on like feminist or on, on the history of suffragettes, you will see a lot of women smoking. Like the idea like, well, that is like, a middle finger to the patriarchy, etc. Like, you think you men can only smoke? We can also do that. That's a torture freedom. Well, actually, those women were to totally manipulated by a totally paternalistic, patriarchic smoking industry. So, meanings need to be manipulated. Do I need to say anything about this? <laughs> or, unfortunately, also about that? or about public relations. A lot of what's going on in politics is about meaning manipulation. So, we're now almost getting at the end of my talk. And now the question is like, I've been telling you, well, we're here now in this very unique historical time and this unique place where we can ask a question about meaning. The question that people like Godwin Rolf could not ask. We can use our skepticism, our critical knowledge. We can listen to our experiences. 
At the same time, we do not want to, to be manipulated by the industry. We don't want that. We want to really find out for ourselves what's meaningful for me and not being manipulated by fake news or commercials. But how do I do that? What are the options? That's the thing you also need to find out for yourself. I'm still figuring that out also. I think all of us need to do that. But in the meantime, I'm, I'm, I see like four different routes that we can go. So the first one is about looking at meanings within capitalism. So look very much at within the system that we live in. Like I cannot immediately change the total world. I cannot. So I have to deal with the fact I live here in London. What is meaningful within that? So as you can see, I'm, I'm punk. I'm pretending not with my suit, etc. But the thing is, I'm very much part of the punk culture. But I'm still part here. Like, I'm talking to you in a more or less formal context. So I'm like doing something meaningful still in a, a type of context. And I often have it when I'm in my full punk clothes and I'm in the tube that people start speaking with me. They say, they tell me, oh, you look so cool. That's really brave. I would love to be able to do that. Then my next question is, why don't you do that, then? <laughs> and I have had the best therapeutic sessions in the tube. <laughs> <laughs> now, literally, like, literally, like, these are really deep conversations often. And, um, and, and often it's, it's like that a person says, well, I cannot do that, I cannot do that, I cannot do that. <laughs> and sometimes we end up by saying, well, but you can wear a different tie tomorrow. A tie that is meaningful to you and that's different from the tie that everyone at your works wears. And you're just wearing it because it feels meaningful to you. Okay, that's the first step. We're not there totally yet, but hey, that's the first step. So we may be able to find some meaningful space for ourselves. But also some people try to find meaning outside capitalism. The thing is, I travel a lot myself also do some kind of anthropological studies abroad, particularly like uh, tribes and tribal cultures, Borneo, the Amazon. It's really beautiful to see how natural people live a meaningful life. And some people, they decide to leave the Western countries and try to live in other places. Or other people, they start their own communities, their own commons. Or they start their own um, communes, their own anarchist housing co-ops, or there are many ways how we can say, well, we start our own mini-society, we can. A place where we can really be meaningful, where we can be, have meaningful relationships, listen to what's truly meaningful to us. Some other people say, yeah, well, we need to fight capitalism, we need to fight a system. And that may also be a way for some people that may be meaningful. And also, that is the last thing that I will be speaking about, is let's also have visions. Let's look forward to the future. What are alternatives? If I'm saying, in all my analysis that I've done until now, that our, meaning, our meanings are being manipulated, okay. But how can we really live a more meaningful life for everyone? How can we enable everyone to live a meaningful life? We can ask us questions. The next slide is going to be very ideological, very political, and uh, undoubtedly some people in the audience will think, oh, or even, but hey, we, we need to start somewhere, the conversation. So hey, that, that's my start. So a meaningful society, what are some of the goals we could set? As a first goal, we should focus at cross-national meaning 
as that of the gross domestic product or financial growth. So we should look at how many people in this society are able to live a meaningful life. That should be our focus. Of course, Bhutan is focusing at gross national happiness. However, happiness is a thing that can be totally manipulated by the industry. And like even with commercials like from Pepsi Coke, it's simply that it's even like making the bigger the manipulation. Because Coke is even telling more, we will make you happy when you focus a full economy about that. No, it should not be about mere happiness. Happiness is still self-interested, but like looking at all the different options, all the different ways how you can live a meaningful life. Look at that. Focus on that in an economy. But also look at a meaningful democracy, where actually we say the meaning manipulation is not allowed. And in the recent weeks we've heard a lot in, in politics about how actually, for instance, the Brexit vote, or also the vote for Trump, has been manipulated by Facebook and possibly by some other groups of people. It's weird that we have an economy and a, politics, a political system at this moment that's so strongly based on, yeah, on meaning manipulation. Also, let's look at meaningful capability. So that's the difference with the more traditional neoliberal ideas that is saying, well, let's make sure people feel not oppressed. But that may not be enough. Some people may need to have some bit more education. Some people may need a little bit of uh, help, the support. So give them more positive opportunities. Some people are nowadays speaking about, for instance, having the, um, the basic income. That may be one of the things. I'm not, I don't know yet, but these are one of the things that could be there. But also look at meaningful work. Forbid meaningless work. And not only here in the UK, but also in India. That's like what we're doing now, because all the uh, rights of, of workers in the UK are quite well uh, regulated, particularly under the EU. But of course, then we just have all our products made in India and uh, China. But forbid that. And use, and use automation for that. And use that money actually to help people. And also meaningful information. I've actually already said it. Just forget all the fake news and all the manipulation, all the PR. And this is possibly my most radical idea, is to actually forbid commercials or adverts that are not related to the characteristics of the product. I know this is un uh, not achievable. I know. I'm not crazy. But you need to set some aims sometimes, a little bit higher than you can get immediately. But also look at meaningful consumption. So no meaningless products or services merely to just make money. And also look at meaningful mental health. It's like, how can people really have a good mental health? By living, by the ability of living a meaningful life. And it's more than only like, yeah, preventing depression or... It, it, it's really creating a, like, a good life for people. It's more than only this. It's doing it together. And finally, it's also about a meaningful education. Learn how to live a meaningful life from young age onwards. That is really crucial. So these are my very ideological ideas. And later we're going to, I hope to see some of you in the pub and after a couple of beers or other drinks, uh, often you get more good ideas. So I'm very <laughs> happy to hear about that. Um, no, but this is very much what I've wanted to tell you. And um, 
Yeah, I'm, it has been a big honor for me to really be speaking here with you. Um, and like what I mentioned, this is for me like a big meaning in my life, uh, working on meaning and educating people on that. So I'm doing much more on that. This is, this is my half minute of doing my PR. This, these are my torches of freedom, trying to catch all of you come to this conference that I'm organizing next year in here, actually, with some beautiful speakers and like a book, etc., and my meaningful stuff. Anyhow, this is my PR bit, so thank you very much. Hey guys, Niall here again. Just one more quick thing before you go. If you're interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, don't forget to go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast and enter your email to sign up. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed the show.